Hello friends, my name is Wally and I'm on the pastoral team here at Jericho Ridge Community Church. One of the roles and privileges I have as a pastor is being invited to participate in people's life experiences. Often these life events are celebratory highlights such as weddings, child dedications, graduations, baptisms. But I'm also invited into life events that are painful and tragic, like unemployment, divorce, illness, abuse, or death. Recently, I sat in the living room of a person going through a tragic and devastating loss. As we talked, it was an extremely emotional time. Understandably, pain, anger, and unanswered questions continuously erupted to the surface. If God exists, then why did this happen? Why that? If God is real, then how could he let this happen to me? We sat and we mourned together. Toward the end of our time, I invited this person to bring all the expressed emotions and questions to God. And the response was one of surprise. You mean I can do that? I can be angry at God? I can question God? And I assured this person that God created them with all their emotions and that they could bring their entire self to God. Anger, hurt, doubts. Because he was inviting them to have this conversation. As the, real, as the realization of this reality sunk in, they thanked me and the floodgates of relief and pent-up emotion poured out. This person thought that they could never fully process certain emotions because they could never talk to God in the midst of their anger or doubt. Friends, what do you think was underlying this person's and many people's understanding of our emotions in relation to God? Quite often we find ourselves working from one of two constructs. The first is religion, which says you need to earn God's attention. And if that's true, then you'll never fully bring your full range of feelings to God because some of those emotions are somehow wrong, bad, or unholy. The second idea in our society is that your feelings are who you are, which raises the significance level of your emotions to a defining status. In other words, this is what I'm feeling, so this is what is true for me, and hence, this is what I am. If I feel doubt, then my doubt begins to define who I am and what I believe, and nothing else is true, and therefore, God can't be true, and God can't exist. Both of these options will actually lead us to unhealthy places, and so God actually offers us a third way of processing our emotions. If we look at God's Word, one of the most prevalent places we find this third way is in the Psalms. The Psalms are a compilation of 150 songs, poems, personal conversations with God that include many powerful feelings. So much so that they often disturb us, making us question, how can it say that in the Bible? What's that doing in the scriptures? And the answer leads us to this third way. The writers of the Psalms are not suppressing or expressing their feelings apart from God. The psalmists are praying their feelings. They're processing their feelings in the presence of God. The writers of the psalms model a third, life-giving way to engage our feelings, particularly those feelings that we may deem negative, challenging, or troublesome, which, by the way, is not necessarily an accurate or helpful descriptor at all. Our current teaching series is called Disillusionment, which is a very challenging emotion. What do we do when we're racked with doubt? Where is the place for doubt in following a perfect God? How can a Christian process doubt after decades of faith? 
We all experience doubt. We all wrestle with it. It's part of our created emotional design. And yet often we don't know what to do with doubt when we experience it. So we end up going to a place of suppressing it or elevating it beyond what is healthy. Friends, today let's look at a third way, a life-giving model of someone who's praying his doubt. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73. The writer of Psalm 73 is processing his doubt and faith in God, in, and in doing so, we get to see the details of his condition, the cause of his doubt, and the remedy. The writer's name is Asaph. And when in doubt, Asaph doesn't suppress it or let it define him. Instead, Asaph engages God with it. Asaph is wrestling deep in his soul, and he reminds us that more than an intellectual matter, doubt is actually a matter of the heart. And as such, it's inevitably real for every age and stage of life. So let me pause and say to those of you who are younger in life, or you're starting out in your faith journey, please know that Jericho Ridge is a safe place to be yourself, your entire self including your struggles, your questions, your doubts about faith and God. Nothing is off the table because as we're going to see in Psalm 73, God does not shy away or reject the matters of the heart. Let's read Psalm 73. I want to read verses 1 to 5 and then skip to verse 12 to 26. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, he says, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. Verse 12. Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people, God. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God. And I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. And then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have, whom have I in, you, in heaven but you, God? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. If we go back to verse 2, immediately we're introduced to Asaph's condition. He's on the verge of losing his faith in a good God. Verse 1, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. 
Picture someone climbing in a boat to fall. They're on shaky ground. They're teetering one way or the other. In the Bible, the idea of your foot slipping to the point of falling is a way of saying that you're eternally lost. Asaph is saying that he almost lost his faith. He was questioning his faith and he's about to go over the edge into the abyss of no longer believing in God. It's an incredibly powerful image of doubt, of losing your footing. Your experience, your eye betrays you and causes you to misplace your foot. You miss your foothold, the ground becomes shaky and it almost causes you to fall. In other words, doubt's a spiritual condition where your heart cannot process something your eyes are witnessing. Asaph says in verse 1, God is good, but I saw something. I saw something, he says in verse 3, that took away my belief in a good God. Friends, this condition of doubt happens to all of us. It's not just for non-Christians or those in a new relationship with God. Paul Tillich says that doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It's an element of faith for all of us. Asaph was, a, was an author of Scripture. So think of where he probably was in his relationship with God. And yet he's filled with doubt. We have this psalm preserved by God because of Asaph's doubt. And Asaph's not the only model of doubt in the Bible. Francis Bacon says regarding learning, if you begin with certainties, you'll end in doubts. But if you're content to begin with doubts, you will end with certainty. In other words, if you never question the teacher, you'll not make it your own. And reality will hit you outside the classroom and it will shatter the textbook. Asaph is questioning, he's processing with the teacher. And he can do that because God has an incredibly balanced and healthy view of doubt. It doesn't scare him. He created it as one of our emotions. Asaph knows that what he's experiencing, and he knows that he can deal with his doubt face to face with God. He's not going to suppress his doubt. He's not going to let it dominate him either. He's at the point of losing his spiritual footing and he says to God, I'm almost gone. So what caused such incredible doubt in Asaph? In verse 3, he tells us what caused his condition. He says, I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. Now, countless things can cause doubt. In Asaph's example, it's seeing injustice, suffering, evil, which gets described uh, in detail in verses 4 to 11 that we didn't read. And the fact that people are benefiting from it. Friends, doubt is never just a matter of thinking. We often express it only as an intellectual piece, but Asaph sees it and experiences it. It goes beyond his intellect. The Apostle Paul says in the New Testament that we walk by faith, not by sight. Friends, the opposite of faith is not reason. As Christians, we walk by faith despite how things appear to us. We believe even when our eyes tell us something different. But we have doubts because our heart has a personal experience that contradicts what our mind knows. Faith is not opposed to reason. Faith is not holding on to something in spite of the evidence. Faith is holding on to something in spite of the appearances. Doubts come when personal experience makes what your mind knows unreal to your heart. 
What your mind believes becomes unrealistic to your heart because of what you're personally experiencing. For example, I might say, I know there's horrific suffering in the world. I know other people experience it. But there's probably a good reason behind it. I'm sure God is with those who are suffering, and He'll use that for their good somehow. I don't know the details of their suffering, but I'm sure God's got some sort of game plan for horrible, unjust suffering in the world. I can say all that until it happens to me. And friends, I've experienced this firsthand, where my thinking, my theology told me one thing, and my reality overrode what I thought about God because of what I experienced. Theologically and rationally, one thing was true. But experientially and emotionally, it couldn't be real. And guess which trumped which? My experience trumped my beliefs, which resulted in conflict and doubt. It was more a condition of my heart than my mind. Asaph was in that condition because he was witnessing great injustice. People were suffering in front of him, probably himself included. And wicked people were prospering as a result. And if his experience was real, then his beliefs in God must not be. Yes, there are real intellectual questions within doubt. But doubt never comes just through thinking. They come through experience. We learn something and then it's tested in our daily experience. And doubt comes when your personal experience makes what your mind knows unreal to your heart. So when that happens, and it will for all of us, what do we do? We know Asaph's condition is doubt. We know his experience of injustice is causing him to doubt. Let's look at what he does to process and remedy his doubts. Asaph engages God with his doubt, and as he does, four things emerge. And I need to acknowledge that I'm adapting these from pastor and author Tim Keller as my source. Asaph does four things in praying through his doubts. First, he doubts his doubts, verse 3. Then he enters God's sanctuary, verse 17. He compares footholds, verse 18. And then verse 23, he feels for God's hand. Without these, we may acknowledge our doubt, we may understand the cause of our doubt, but ultimately, we'll get stuck and consumed in our doubts. So first, Doubt your doubts. In other words, be fair. Yes, we will doubt God. We'll doubt our faith. But we must also doubt our doubts. Look at what Asaph does. Amazing, uh, he's amazingly honest. He says in verse 1 and 2, I believed in a good God, but then I started to doubt. Verse 3, For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seemed to live such painless lives. Asaph is reminding us that our motives are never pure when it comes to doubt. Asaph looks at injustice. Now, the Bible takes injustice seriously and speaks against it. But what he's saying is that when injustice didn't affect my life, I wasn't really bothered by it too much. In other words, I never would have been angry at God for allowing the wicked to prosper if I hadn't started seeing it firsthand and wanting a piece of the same pie they had. I'm angry and doubting because I'm not prospering. Asaph is hit with the emotional force of what he's seeing, but he's willing to distill out the dishonesty within his doubt. Later in verse 21, he says, I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. 
There are always going to be honest and dishonest parts to your doubts. So you have to deconstruct your doubts and distill what is true and what is not. Even when we're experiencing suffering and pain, our motives are never fully pure. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful. Proverbs 16.2, all a person's motives seem pure to them, but motives are rightly weighed by God. Psalm 53 and Psalm 51, search my heart, O God. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Why? Because it's not necessarily pure. We're human, and on our own, our hearts are not pure. And our doubts can be loaded with selfish motives because we're using them as a means of escaping what we really need to face internally. You see, our instinct is to focus on self. Our instinct to focus on self is present in our doubting. Even in suffering, when you say you can't believe in a God who would let this happen to me, what you're really saying is because I can't see a purpose in this suffering, then there can't really be one. My experience trumps everything else. There's always some pride or some desire to control or some sense of needing to reestablish myself, renovate the veneer of who I am so I don't look damaged. So no matter what my circumstances, I bring myself into those realities and if they cause me to doubt, I need to sift my doubts and check to see what isn't true within my doubts. Which of my motives are not pure, untrue, or inaccurate? Which are God's Spirit working in me to draw me toward Him? Which of those are true? Friends, this is hard work, especially on the heels of suffering. Again, I know this personally. At age seven, I was severely traumatized. One of the many unhealthy remnants of that experience surfaced as an adult. Once I was a longtime follower of Jesus, I had degrees under my belt. I had pastoral experience under my belt, decades of it. And yet I could not reconcile Jesus being present at the time and place of my abuse. Of course he wasn't there because it was such a terrible and evil situation. But with the help of my counselor, I began to doubt my doubts. If God is everywhere, he had to have been there. And yes, theologically speaking, intellectually speaking, Jesus was there. But I doubted he was there because he didn't do what I wanted him to do. If I were Jesus, or if Jesus was who I said he should be, then... Do you see the self-focused motives guiding my thought process? God says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, that his thoughts are not my thoughts, and neither are my ways his ways. So who am I to construct a God, to direct God? I needed to wrestle this aspect of my doubt with God. You see, there's always some desire to establish myself as more powerful than I am, to be in control, especially if there's abuse of power, pain, suffering. So the first thing I need to do is doubt my doubts. What about my doubt is not true because it's coming from a place of self, pain, power, wickedness? Wrestle. Wrestle with yourself and God. Ask Him to reveal the impure motives of your heart, to reveal what the pain is, masquer- what the pain is masquerading, to reveal the source of your doubt. And then confess those, thing- those things to yourself and to God, which leads us to the second thing we can do in our doubt. Verse 17, Asaph enters God's sanctuary. We can enter God's sanctuary in our doubt. 
In the Old Testament, when Asaph entered God's sanctuary, it was a physical temple where God dwelt. Why did he go there? What did he go there to do? Asaph went into the sanctuary and he participated in worship. Now here's the principle. You don't get into doubts only by thinking, and therefore you're not going to get through your doubts only by thinking. You got into the doubts, as we talked about earlier, through experience as well. It's never just raw data that influences your thoughts. There's always personal experience attached to the data, and that was the case for Asaph. He takes his soul, his heart, and he worships in God's sanctuary. He probably prayed, sang, read scripture. He approached God with his whole being, not only his mind. Worship's not only an intellectual and spiritual act, it's also a physical act. The physical act of going toward God, going into his presence, praying, lifting hands, singing, kneeling, crying out before God, at least as much as we can do so in our limited humanness. It's not fair to process your doubt without this step. The world gives you all sorts of sensory experiences that says God is not real. So you have to do something to balance that. To engage not only in your intellect, but to also engage in your senses in an experience. To also engage your senses in an experience of God's presence. So yes, sing, take communion, pray, be with God's people. God, I'm here. Are you here? I need to meet with you, talk to him. So the second thing we do is not reduce God to only an object of theory, speculation, or doubt. We also need to elevate him as an object of our worship, engaging him, moving toward him, even before you find him, and even before your doubt dissipates. In fact, precisely in the midst of your questioning and doubting, I encourage you to seek God. Isaiah 55, God says, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you don't have anything to offer. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. So secondly, you go into God's sanctuary, into his presence, and you engage all of your senses, not just your thoughts, not just your doubts. And then third, Psalm 73, verse 18. You compare footholds. Remember at the beginning that Asaph likened his faith to putting your foot on something that's slippery. In other words, if you're climbing up the mountain and you see rocks in front of you, every time you put your foot on a rock, you're putting your faith in that rock. And if that rock doesn't give you sure footing, down you go. It's a great image. Asaph likens faith to putting your foot on something that is shaky or slippery. And surely, he says, you, God, have put the wicked on slippery ground, and actually it's so slippery that they're, they're going to slide over the cliff to destruction because they don't believe in you. Verse 17 and 18, Asaph says, Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. Now here's the principle behind what Asaph is saying, and I want to quote Tim Keller here. He says, you never have to choose between belief and non-belief because there's no such thing as non-belief. Doubt of Christianity always masks the fact that doubt itself is also a leap of faith. You cannot disbelieve in God without believing in something else in that moment, be it your own intellect, your own, own intuition, something else. In other words, You can't prove there's a God, and so you may doubt. 
but you equally can't prove without a doubt that there is not a God. And therefore, no matter which direction you go, you're placing your footing on something in an act of faith. So what Asaph is doing is he's comparing footholds before he takes his next step. He says, the reason I can't trust my faith, even if it's shaky, the reason I can trust my faith, even if it's shaky, is because the faith of the wicked is worse. It's impossible. In his book, A Severe Mercy, Sheldon Van Aken, who is a friend of C.S. Lewis, recounts his process of becoming a Christian and the leap of faith it took. Once he had been presented with the person of Jesus, he wanted proof that Jesus was the risen Christ. But the gap of irre irrefutable proof was impossible to cross, so he couldn't move forward toward Jesus. But then he realized that in order to go back to his former way of thinking, there was also a gap behind him. And so he writes this. He says, I suddenly realized that, that I would have to take a leap of faith because while I couldn't prove that God existed, I could not prove that he was not. Therefore, to even go back was a leap of faith. And when I realized that it would take enormous faith to accept or reject Jesus, I knew what I had to do. I flung myself over the gap in front of me toward Jesus. Asaph is acknowledging that the faith he stands on has issues. It's shaky. Issues that require a leap of faith. He says, I believe in a good God, yet I see all this injustice around me. But the place that the wicked stand on is even worse, and that's why I choose to put my feet where I do. He's comparing the footholds of his faith with the footholds of the wicked, and he's saying that their foothold leads to destruction. So yes, if you believe in God, injustice and suffering like it was for Asaph is a big problem for us. Your footing is shaky because if God is good, why is he allowing all this wickedness? It's a real and valid question. But if you do not believe in God, suffering and wickedness is an even bigger problem. Because if, if there is no God, you're left with natural selection where the strong consume the weak. And at some point, someone stronger, faster, smarter than you is going to come along and impose themselves on you and shove you over the cliff to destruction. Friends, whenever we say we cannot believe, as Sheldon Van Aken put it, we're faced with a gap in front and a gap behind. Either way, you'll take a leap of faith and you'll put your faith in something. You're either going to leap toward God or away from God. And as Asaph did, before you leap, leap it's wise to check your foothold. Will it hold you and remedy your doubts or will it cause you to slip toward destruction. So that's the third step. The last step when we doubt is we need to feel for God's hand. In verse 23, Asaph says, Yet still I belong to you. You hold my right hand. Here's what goes on in the processing, processing of our doubts. If you doubt your doubts, if you enter God's sanctuary, if you compare the footholds, compare the problems of Christianity versus the problems of a life without God, if you work through these steps, you're eventually going to come to a place where you realize you have a fear of meeting God in your doubts. That in my doubts, I'm actually afraid of meeting God because of what he might do to me. Afraid of what he might say to me. Afraid of what he might think of me. Afraid of not being accepted. I'm afraid to meet God in my doubt. And yet Asaph says in verse 23, 
I was grieved, I was bitter, I was full of envy, I turned my back on you, God, and yet I am still your child, and you've been holding my hand through all my struggles, through my rebellion and my doubts. Friends, God doesn't let go of us when we doubt. Asaph says, I walked away from God and focused on other things, and yet God treated me like a son, like a daughter. How can Asaph know that? Because ultimately he received assurance of his God when he went into the temple and sacrifices were made on his behalf, which is what they did in the Old Testament. A priest would intercede for you on your behalf so you could have access to God. He would make sacrifices on your behalf. If you never get assurance, friends, of a gracious God, you're not going to get through your doubts. And thankfully, we don't live under the Old Testament uh, laws where a priest needs to offer sacrifices on our behalf to, for us to have access to God. We live under a new covenant ushered in by Jesus. When we go into God's sanctuary, into his presence, we're told in the New Testament under this new covenant that we can enter without the sacrifice of a human priest. We enter personally because of grace. We have something so much more direct, so much more personal than Asaph had. How can you know that despite all of your doubts, even your anger or bitterness toward God, how can you know that God will still accept you, that he holds your hand? Grace. Grace. The same grace that enabled Jesus, God's own son, to die on the cross in our place. Jesus took on everything that we deserved, gave the priestly sacrifice once and for all on our behalf, and then he rose from the grave conquering sin. Grace won that day, and the same grace that won that day assures us that God will not let go of our hand when we're on shaky ground. Ephesians 2.8 says we're saved by God's grace because of what Jesus experienced and accomplished on the cross. We need to accept this truth of a gracious God who never lets go of our hands even when we doubt. Without experiencing this reality, we'll never have the ability to move beyond our doubts. Friend, are you ready to process your doubts in this reality and let grace come to bear on your doubt? The writer of another psalm, David, in Psalm 145, verse 14 says, The Lord helps the fallen. He lifts those bent beneath their loads. Friend, are you ready to feel the hand of a gracious, loving God who invites you to enter into his presence and pray your doubts? A God who says, Come. Doubt your doubts. Come, enter my sanctuary. Compare the footholds of life with or without me. And then feel for my hand. It's holding yours. We do all these four things in prayer. So if you find yourself in a place of doubt today, I invite you to reach out and pray with someone. If you're watching live on our Jericho Ridge interactive platform, you can press the prayer button and one of our pastors is ready to pray with you. Otherwise, at any time, you can email prayer at jerichoridge.com and one of our pastoral staff will get back to you, engage with you in prayer.